It is the 200 level episode 82 from the basement. Mike Carpenter here for our third and fourth episode recaps of The Last Dance and, of course, some other sports news as we get to it. Illinois basketball, some potential transfers, Illinois football, no one drafted, unfortunately, and still awaiting word on whether guys like Reggie Corbin or Wale Batiku will get an invite to a team as an undrafted free agent. Lots of things that we will get to in this episode on a Monday morning as we kind of recap a sports-heavy weekend um, when you consider the last few weeks. You have the NFL draft, you got the last dance, so we at least have some fodder to talk about on this Monday. Later this week, excited to have Lante hop on. I think we'll record that Thursday afternoon, so we'll either get that up Thursday evening or Friday morning, so it'll be fun to talk with Lon and see how he's been doing this every single day, him and Derek and Trevor on the drive on 93.5. Working on some other guests as we go forward, we'll get Isaac Ambrose on again, but there's some people that during the midst of a quarantine you can reach out to that maybe normally they wouldn't have time to hop on, but now everyone's just kind of staying home. So I'm working on some things, whether it be sports related or otherwise. And along the way, you know, I mentioned before that Illinois basketball seems to be giving us more fodder than anything. And as we get in this transfer market, I have no doubts that there will be news coming down the pike about Brad Underwood adding guys to this roster. And then, of course, we all wait with bated breath on whether Kofi Coburn is or is not going to come back for Illinois next year. So plenty to talk about as we go forward. But today, focusing on episodes three and four of The Last Dance. Before we get into it, got to let you know the DP Doe. You can order online at dpdoe.com for all the best deals and prices, dpdoe.com. We're talking custom zones where you can put any topping that you want to in it or some of their favorites like the buffer zone, the Maui Wowie. You get the dipping sauce with it. You get tots for a side if you would like that. Uh, listen, I'll let Harry Black talk a little more in detail about DP Dough because that's his jam, but you can order online at dpdough.com. Also, you have State Farm agent Brian Hansen online at brianismyguy.com. That's Trevor's favorite domain, brianismyguy.com, for all your insurance needs, auto, life, home, business, renters, you name it. And not only are they insurance experts, but Brian and his staff. They have your local interest at heart. They're all Champaign-Urbana products. So brianismyguy.com. Also, 4th and Kirby online at 4thandkirby.com. Use coupon code 200LEVEL or the 200LEVEL for 10% off your orders at 4thandkirby.com. We're getting into warmer weather. Plenty of awesome t-shirts available. I have a couple of them. They fit great. They look great. And the vintage part of it, that's the thing. Nike, they screwed the pooch. There's no good Alana Eye apparel from Nike this year. Fourth and Kirby, they got you covered online at fourthandkirby.com. Also, Lana Inquirer, partners in the relaunch of the 200 level and Champagne Showers Podcast Network. All right, without further ado, let's get to it. So we got Harry Black on the horn. And as I'm watching this last night, Harry, I'm on my couch, enjoying some popcorn, enjoying a drink, watching episodes three and four. You are at the mothership as these things are airing. So what is your setup like for the last dance Sunday nights as you work late into the evening in Bristol? So for me, <clears throat> for me, it's, um, it's kind of funny because I have the shift and right now there's very few people in my department that are actually there. So it's uh, in radio screening. I am the only one there. And it just so happens that my shift lines up with for the last two weeks when these come on ESPN, when usually I'll be looking and seeing, okay, what do I have to grab from sports center or whatever? Well, if there's nothing on sports center and they're playing this, for the most part, I really just get to sit back and watch these, especially since there's no games or nothing else really pressing audio on a Sunday night. I get to just watch these on um, on the TV. I have I have uh, two computers in front of me, one for editing, 
audio and one for getting uh, uh, emails and accessing the internet if I need to get audio from Twitter or Snapchat or whatever. But then I have a, um, a TV like right next to me, one of these little tiny, oh, like computer screen monitors, but it's for TV. And then in front of me, I have like 10 big TVs, but they all don't have volume. So I'm watching on the, uh, on the little TV right in front of me. Obviously, I have it turned to the channel. So I basically, I set it up so that I can almost tune everything else out as I get to watch this. But then if, you know, people ask me if I can do some audio or, or edit something and get it to them, I'll definitely get on top of that. But for the most part, it's worked out beautifully so that I really don't have to do anything but enjoy this for the next two hours. And it's, it's considered part of my job almost because, well, not even almost, it's considered part of my job because then afterwards, when SVP comes on SportsCenter, he'll talk to Michael Wilbon and Jackie McMullen and then the pressing stuff, because what the company wants to do right now is we want to focus on the last dance. So we want to get as much audio on this. So uh, Wilbon and McMullen will come on and they'll start to kind of go over that because they're Chicago writers yeah. uh, back in the day. They covered Jordan and, and the, these Bulls teams. So they'll kind of give their perspective. We want that audio. So I clip that. And if I have watched the, uh, the documentary for the last two hours, I have a better perspective on that. So it works out beautifully. The best part, though. The absolute best part is that for the last two weeks, this documentary, me going there, it's all lined up with uh, my personal refeeding extravaganza. <laughs> so last week I brought in half of uh, homemade pizza and two uh, Italian hoagies. And then last night I brought in like a couple of sweet potatoes. A, a bowl of, um, of spaghetti and cheese casserole oh, and a, uh, an entire an entire pint of Aldi knockoff vanilla bean, um, what's it called? You know, like Halo Top, that protein, quote-unquote, ice cream? Yes, yeah. Yeah, well, Aldi has their own version that's um, pretty much just as good. You just got to let it melt a little bit. The entire pint's like 250 calories, which is absolutely beautiful. Mm -hmm. So I'm sitting there. Gorgeous. Probably not looking too professional as I just have a spoon in my um in my little personal pint of ice cream watching the Jordan documentary. On the clock, around to come and tell me not to do it because everyone else is at home. Yeah. And it's my job. It's beautiful. It reminds me of a couple times back in 93.5 where there would be, let's say during Big Ten tournament play, Illinois would play at 1 o'clock. And it's like, well... I got to watch it. I'm on the show. I got to know what's going on. This is part of my job. And then I'm realizing, man, for two hours, I'm on the clock and I'm just watching sports. Um, so you get this very cool vantage point from ESPN. Plus, you get to gorge on what do you call the days? Refueling days, right? Re yeah, refeeding days. Because essentially, okay. essentially uh, what, what I and, and I won't get too into it. But what I do is I try to average out so that on a weekly basis, I eat about 3000 calories a day, 21 uh, thousand per week because that average that that kind of when I did the calculations that allows me to kind of maintain or lose maybe like 0.25 pounds a week around that basically just maintaining because I don't want to do anything extreme while this is all going on in, in the world around us and I don't really have access to a real gym mm. um, so really um, I'm just trying to kind of keep a level but uh, you know, days one through six, I will eat around 2,833 calories. And then that allows me to have the one day 
to build up kind of an allowance of 4,000 calories where I want to eat stuff that is super high in carbs because I've been kind of depleting myself of that, which just is absolutely glorious. Oh, it's all, it's so cool. I like that. I like that approach where I've heard of cheat days <laughs> before, but you take the cheat day to the next level by saying, I'm not just going to gorge on, you know, Tombstone Pizza. I'm going to make oh, a yeah. homemade pizza that's legit quality. I'm going to oh, yeah. make sure that instead of just going out to Burger King or something, you would instead make, you know, homemade beef patties, Angus 100% quality <laughs> and all that crap. So, I, yeah, like I said, my, my Sunday evening was much more uh, humble in terms of the cuisine. I had some <laughs> boom chicka pop popcorn. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I actually know what that is. That, that's like it's it's um it's it's one of those like big pre-made bags, right? Yeah, they're fine. You know, they're very. It's, yeah. There's not a lot of flavor to it, but I, you know, I was talking with Care about this last night about how I like dry food. So I'll, I'll put it this way: I like dry, salty food. Some people prefer more uh, savory and sweet kind of food. So sometimes she'll be like, hey, I didn't put enough salt on what we're eating. And I'm like, no, I'm good. It's fine. She's like, well, don't you think it's not flavorful enough? I'm like, no, it's flavorful enough for me. So this Boom Chicka Pop is the most stale whatever popcorn. But I I just munch that crap. So I'm sitting down for episode three. We all knew going in that this was going to be the Robin episode. Very highly anticipated because, well, it's Dennis Rodman. And... For you, Harry, and, and we'll get Trevor on later, he was not able to watch it. We'll get into that in a second. Yeah, poor guy. <laughs> but for you guys, Dennis Rodman, any of these guys are sort of, they're old sports figures. You know of them, but you weren't watching them live. So for Dennis Rodman, what was what did you know, or what were your preconceived notions of Dennis Rodman entering this documentary? What, what level of, uh, I guess, exposure did you have to him? Well, I knew he played for the Pistons, and I knew when he came out of college, he was pretty much a laid-back, normal, yeah, normal kind of guy. I knew he was not a big offensive of juggernaut. I knew he was really, really a defensive player. I didn't know to the extent that he was a Hall of Fame caliber rebounder. I didn't know that he was like the best defender of the nineties and one of the best of all time. Mm -hmm. You see those, those highlights of him against Carl Malone in the 97 and the 98 finals. And I kind of just thought, yeah, he was, he was kind of like what the Sixers tried to do with Matumbo on Shaq. That's what I thought it was when really he was pretty much as good on defense as Carl Malone was on offense, which is really saying a lot. Um, You know, obviously I know of all the antics with his hair. I know that, I, and I don't really know what you would call it as far as how he dresses and presents himself. Um, flamboyant. I don't. Yeah, it's very flamboyant. Yeah, um, because I don't know if it has anything to do with you know gender identity or anything like that. I don't think it does. At least from the way that he talks and he presents himself, I think he's just having fun. Yeah. Um, and then, and then with over the last couple of years, you see him in the media and and doing stuff with Korea. So I. As far as that goes, I don't really know what he's doing. I don't know why he feels the need to go over to a country that I don't really know our relationship with, but at the same time... Well, it's not good. I mean, no, it's not good. <laughs> it's not good. So why why is our ambassador... I mean, say what you will about him, whether you agree or not with how he dresses and presents himself, but why is our ambassador someone who colors his hair 
like a Crayola crayon. I, I mean, why why is that who we're having going over and presenting ourselves to a uh, to a foreign diplomat? Well, I, we aren't. Well, I, yeah, that's the foreign diplomat. I mean, diplomat has a very sort of prestigious term. North Korea yeah. is just whatever. But so the whole thing with Rodman in North Korea, and there's a Vice documentary about this that came out three, four, five years ago. And Rodman would go over there because Kim Jong-un growing up was a huge fan of the Bulls. And he loved basketball. And somehow he was able to convince Rodman to come over. I think he paid him a lot of money. They drank the entire trip. I mean, Rodman is a severe alcoholic. There was actually a show, maybe it was Celebrity Rehab, back on VH1 where he went in and Dr. Drew tried to help him. Of course, Dr. Drew didn't really help him. But Rodman has uh, become good friends with Kim Jong-un. So a few days ago, or maybe just Friday, I think this came out, that Kim Jong-un was probably dead. But we can't say for sure because North Korea wouldn't tell us anyways. Yeah. And I thought, wow, what great timing. We got the Rodman documentary. Well, the Rodman episode Sunday. <laughs> great timing. Kim Jong-un <laughs> is likely dead. You know, because Kim Jong-un is five foot six and 300 pounds. He's an unhealthy little bugger. So what, what's really cool about that episode and what it reminded me about Rodman was that for all his eccentricities, of which there were many, and his flamboyance and his rock star persona. I mean, he had a book called Bad As I Want to Be that my sister had to beg my parents to let her buy. She was in high school. But on the cover was basically a nude Dennis Rodman with like a basketball in front of his junk. That was the cover. Yeah, I saw. Yeah, they, they showed that picture on, um, on, on the documentary last night. Yeah, so he was an A-list celebrity. You did not get much bigger than Dennis Rodman and other than Michael Jordan. And really, to an extent, as good as Scotty was on the court, Dennis Rodman was the more interesting personality. Uh, but let's get straight to it. The, the best, most salacious story in episode three was when Jordan, first, it's the 48-hour Vegas trip that goes longer than 48 hours. Jordan himself goes to pick up Dennis Rodman, which I thought that's kind of total alpha mode. That the superstar would say, oh, it's okay, coach. I'm going to go get him. It's my team. I'm going to go get him. Knocks on the door, and Jordan says, I'm not going to tell you who or what was in the room. But, you know, we got Dennis. We brought him back. Immediately cut to Carmen Electra. The next scene. Like, the next frame. I'm not going to tell you what was in the room. So, Michael's knocking (laughs) on the door. It's like, oh, I wonder what. Like, just think about what's in that room at that point. There's probably so many drugs. There's. Butt-ass naked Dennis Rodman and <laughs> Carmen Electra, and in walks Michael Jordan. I mean, that, that's that might be some of the most star power that's ever been in, in one, one room. room. It is the most '90s headline <laughs> ever, and I cannot believe. And I, I don't know how widespread the story was back then because this is pre-social media. They wouldn't have talked about it on Sports Center because they they sort of left the players' personal lives out of Sports Center back then. So without all that exposure, that probably just became urban legend. And I know some journalists knew about it. I think Michael Wilbon on the Sports Center immediately afterwards alluded to the fact that people knew about it, but they couldn't really verify it. So you get that story in there. And I'm thinking, again, back to you and Trevor and your age. Carmen Electra is a name that maybe for Lon and his generation, like Bo Derrick, Farrah Fawcett, Right. We we know of them, but we don't I don't quite understand just how important Farrah Fawcett was to pubescent teenage boys in the 1970s. Carmen Electra in the 90s was the pinup girl. And you did not get bigger than Carmen Electra at in high school dated Prince. 
I think she was 17 years old, dated Prince. So that's not a bad start. And then at 26 years old, which is, I think, when this all goes down, her and Dennis Rodman have a thing. This, of course, after Dennis Rodman dated Madonna. Yeah. It's just, it's (laughs) surreal, the lives that these guys lead. But Rodman, more than any of them, Jordan's guarded. We don't know what famous people he has or hasn't been with. Rodman's an open book, even though he's an introvert. And I thought that was an interesting thing that they showed. He's an introverted guy, and yet he had all this crazy party lifestyle attached with it. Yeah, I mean, because afterwards on um, on Sports Center with uh, with SVP, uh, Jackie McMullen came on and told that story about how he was an introvert and how early in his career, when he was with the Pistons, he was getting ready to go out during an All Star game and they were booing him, and he started to he started to cry and said, "Why do they? Why don't they like me?" And McMullen said, "Well, it's because you're a bad boy." So you, you kind of get the idea that he put up this. I don't want to say facade because that makes it sound sound like it wasn't real but i do like the word facade because it's got that little doodle hanging off one of the letters i forget (laughs) if it's the c or the a but it it looks pretty cool it's not an umlaut (laughs) i only know of an umlaut yeah the two little dots no it's got like that little like the same thing that pierre garçon has hanging off of one of his letters that comes yeah right bottom of the c yeah facade but but yeah like i I think he kind of did it to put up a shield so that he could still be introverted but almost like removing himself from this uh, this persona that would allow him to not really get hurt by the outside world's opinion of him. And um, yeah, that's, you know, it's funny. Carmen Carmen Electra. I'm trying to think of a of a of comparison for her in, in the today's 90s. world. It's, yeah, well, today's world probably not right now, but for me growing up, and the only person I can think of that was kind of that level for any time period. Would probably be Megan Fox. Okay. For back, back back in like the late two thousands, uh, who who everyone just saw as this ultimate, just really sex symbol that um that really just it, it didn't matter what she did or you know who she knew she was just basically known for being that attractive. Is, is that kind of what Carmen Electra was like in the in the, in the Megan, 1990s? You know, Megan Fox had a two, three-year run with the Transformers movies, but Carmen Electra, I think, became more of a pop culture icon than Megan Fox ever did. I do remember, though, Megan Fox, I mean, gorgeous, right? And then she got work yeah. done when she was like 24, which that makes no sense. But a friend of mine, this is probably back in college when she was blowing up and becoming really famous, Someone said, yeah, you know, but she's got toe thumbs. Oh, my. First of all, I mean, toes and fingers are pretty much the same thing. Exactly. And I'm, I, I remember saying, I, I don't care. Her toe thumbs? <laughs> that is the lowest thing on my – she could literally have – this is like an old Harry Black would you rather question. She could have, she could have little tiny tongues just like, the, like a snake creature just – piling off every single finger or digit and it wouldn't matter what would be yeah, some, I, I li- what was no, one of your like, old ones the old well, I, was, I was listening to one of our uh, one of the old tang cards from back in the day and one of them was <laughs> would you rather i'll let you drink real quick i don't want you to spit this okay up i'm ready i'm ready uh, it was would you rather have a little baby hand for every <laughs> one of your fingers <laughs> like not baby fingers but like a little baby yes. hand in place of one of your fingers or have like six random toes spread across both of your shins. <laughs> and I think the consensus was the toes because you, you, didn't, really, you, you didn't have to deal with them as, as much as, um, as the hands. Although the hands, 
might have some practical use except for the fact that they were baby hands. Yeah, exactly. They wouldn't yeah. be yeah, they, they wouldn't be quite well, as coordinated as you you would need to maximize that. But I remember exactly. all the sort of body amorphous freaky scenarios that you laid out for Harry Blacks would you rather and I just thought Totham, who cares? That's so minor compared to that. So that, that's an okay comparison. I, I I think that I mean, I've been having a hard time with it. Certainly not Kim Kardashian, because that blew up into this ridiculous level. But at the yeah. same time, if Carmen Electra had existed in today's social media landscape dating all these guys and being the pinup that she was, I don't see any reason why she wouldn't have become Kardashian-like. I mean, she for the time period and the lack of media comparatively back then, I mean, there was still tabloids and everything, but there wasn't the sort of internet-based... Um, in entertainment industry going on. If you put her in today's world dating all those guys and being how attractive she was, I, I don't doubt that she would be, you know, right up there with Kim Kardashian. Well, for me, I, I it, they, they kind of seem like different personas. In that, and I don't know as much about Carmen Electra, but while, I mean, let, don't get me wrong, they're both very attractive, of uh, very attractive women, but I kind of see Carmen Electra more as she, she, that's her persona, whereas, whereas Kim Kardashian, it's more so, it's more so her appearance outside of how she looks. It's it's how she presents herself with um with her wealth, you know. It, yeah, that's it's, fair. It's, it's her endeavors as far as like um, I'm not sure if she has like makeup or fashion that she does. Um, I don't know how much of her money is is self made. I don't know. If it is all inherited, or if she actually does know what she's doing to an extent, you would think she knows how to brand herself, how to market herself. Because I don't know if her, who are uh, Bruce slash Caitlyn Jenner, if he or uh, if she made a lot of money in in her career, or if um, or if it's her mom, Kris Jenner, who made all the money. I don't know. So you would imagine that she was famous because of who her parents were, but I feel like she kind of did enough for herself to make herself the name that she is today. And I don't know how much of it has to do with just her, her appearance. I feel like she kind of made more so a name for herself with, yeah. um, with, with making her brand. Something whereas, Carmen to Electra, that. whereas Carmen Electra is just this absolute gorgeous human being. And, and that's kind of what her brand became. And I think the big distinction between the two of them is that Kim Kardashian, and maybe I'm just saying this is the 33-year-old guy who doesn't care that much, but seems to be more of an icon for females. In other words, if you went to her Instagram and looked at the demographics of who follows Kim Kardashian, I'm guessing it's like 70, 75% female. And certainly yeah. there are guys that find her attractive, but it's more a female sort of icon for whatever reason. Carmen Electra... If she had an Instagram page, 75 to 80% of them would be male followers. She wouldn't have that same sort of clout with the females because I think in a way, I just remember this may be youth talking and being teenager back when she was around, but all the guys were like, Carmen Electra, Carmen Electra, and all the girls were like, Ugh, whatever, you know, just a pinup model. So yeah, she probably wouldn't have had that ability to market herself in the same way that a Kim Kardashian would have. And now you have all these you know, a ridiculous number of Instagram models. So she would have been at the absolute tip top of that world or that sphere. So we get Dennis Rodman. What I loved about episode three was how they framed the whole Pistons bad boy, bad boys rivalry within that hour. 
And actually, that now that I think about it, that extended into episode four. So really, they're doing a good job of making each pair of episodes companion pieces. They get into the bad boys rivalry. And Harry, I had heard about it, but I was two, three years old. So I didn't live through it. But by the end of the way, the way they framed it, I was ready to hate the Pistons all over again. Didn't live through it again, but I hated them. And the the best part of the entire pair of episodes last night to me was when Jordan is looking at Isaiah Thomas's explanation for why they didn't shake hands. And then Jordan says, well, you can show me whatever you want to show me, but I know that's just Isaiah being an ass. He added yeah. a word after ass. But uh, that to me, though, Jordan is most unguarded, old, bitter man, can't let the grudge go. But I love it because it's just something that is lacking in a lot of professional sports leagues now. True vitriol towards your opponent that lasts for 30 years. And I know it isn't healthy, but it sure is entertaining. Well, yeah, and I saw I saw on, uh, on SportsCenter afterwards, they had John Sally on talking about that. And obviously you had just watched this Jordan documentary having all the guys saying, yeah, they just walked off the court because we had just beat their ass. But I did think it was a pretty interesting viewpoint from Sally that he gave afterwards in that, and I don't know if they said this on the documentary, but... The, uh, the Bulls had to go through the Pistons the same way that the Pistons had to go through the Celtics. Like, they had gotten knocked off a couple times before they were able to get over that hump and finally get to, uh, get to the finals where they lost to the Lakers and then beat the Lakers and then beat the Trailblazers. So the Pistons, they had to, they had to, um, knock off their own giant before they became really, really the Bulls before the Bulls. I mean, if Jordan never comes back after 94, 95, those two probably have very similar trajectories and, um, and successful. You, you look back at those probably the same way because uh, Pistons made three finals and won two of them. They lost one of them in seven. Yeah. Um, and then, and then the Bulls would have won three of their own. So what he had said, what Sally had said, that happened after they had beaten the Celtics is that the Celtics kind of handed them the torch. And what they did was they walked off the court as well with a little bit of time left, like the starters did and the Pistons. And I don't know how much of this is true. The Pistons then said, let's treat the Bulls the same way the Celtics treated us. Let's hand them the torch the same way the Celtics did to us in not shaking their hands. Yeah, and which is to say not. A, yeah, which is to say not at all. It's like okay, yeah. we're. <laughs> yeah, well, so and, and I don't know how much of that I buy, but I did think it was an interesting viewpoint to see them kind of explain their rationale for why they didn't shake their hands. Um, it, it was interesting for me as well because basketball, unlike the other three major sports is the one sport that I really don't see as having any huge rivalries. I mean, when your biggest rivalry is Celtics-Lakers, two teams that only play each other in the finals, I mean, that's really that, that only kind of just seems like a rivalry in that it's your two best franchise in your sport and them having you know a rivalry of who's the greatest. It's kind of similar, a much larger scale, but it's similar to, say, um, you know, Steelers Cowboys had a quote unquote rivalry because they had made three Super Bowls. Um, it, it, so basketball is one of these sports that before last night I saw as not really having a, a big, you know, hatred between any two teams because even nowadays, look at the, uh, look, look at 
the Bulls and the Pistons. You're a Bulls fan. Do you care about I, the Pistons in any way? Shape, I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't even go so far as to say I'm a Bulls fan. I mean, uh, but I, I I was thinking as you were talking about that. You know, you go to United Center. It's like, yeah, Bulls Pistons. Come on, Zach Levine. You show <laughs> Blake Griffin who's boss. And it, you know, that's the thing. You brought up a good point there because I think the the rivalries in the NBA are fleeting. So, for example, right now, if the Cavs and the Warriors played, who cares? No one cares. Two of the worst teams in the NBA right now. It, it is fleeting. It's always been that case in the NBA, which goes back to this idea that it's a star-driven league. Uh, you know, I've been reading this book. I can't, I can't recommend it enough, but I got it for my uh, Kindle app, and it's seven bucks. It's called The Jordan Rules, which you may have heard of it, but it's the very famous, the first famous Jordan book that came out after their 90-91 championship season. And it actually led Jordan to sort of freeze out the author, Sam Smith, who was writing for the Tribune at the time, uh, but still covered the team. And then he still writes for uh, the Chicago Bulls website, actually. But reading that, you know, it's it's so quickly transports you back to when these rivalries between the Bulls and the Pistons or the Bulls and the Knicks or uh, for that matter, the Lakers and Celtics were still on the tail end of their rivalry and how quickly within the span of really a year or two, they would go from heated rivalry to whatever. I mean, the Bulls, the Pistons dropped off precipitously. And that is um, even so early as 1990 90, or 91-92, the Pistons go from, I think, like a 55-win team to a 43-win team. Their time was clearly up. Um, yeah, I had not thought about that. As we bring Trevor Valise on, Trevor, how are we doing today? What's going on, boys? Doing pretty well. Well, we're gonna get in a second to your um, your Sunday night, and <laughs> <laughs> though it's not uh, a bad Sunday, I mean, but by all intents and purposes, I'd be happy not a bad to explain. Sunday. No, it wasn't a bad Sunday night. It was just a little, like I said, little FOMO. Well, oh yeah, you yeah. will, I'm sure, catch up on this, and we'll try to avoid spoilers. But what we have talked about so far, the Bulls Pistons rivalry was a big topic of conversation last night. Carmen Electra made a very memorable appearance. Dennis Rodman she was making the rounds on Twitter. I saw her trending. Yes, and uh, the, the focus being Dennis Rodman and Phil Jackson. We haven't really talked about Phil Jackson yet, but Trevor Harry posited a very interesting thought that rivalries in the NBA, more than any other league, they tend to come and go and not have nearly as much staying power. So, for example, the Bulls Pistons, if they played this season, who cares? And yet, that used to be right. a thing. Or Bulls Knicks was another big one, and. Even Lakers Celtics, depending on the year, it's not really going to get all that much generate that much heat. So, well, I'm thinking of Bulls Heat from like five or six years ago. That was an actual thing for a few years where they totally. kept meeting up in the early rounds of the playoffs. So it's very fleeting, yeah. and as we saw last night, though, it's not fleeting for Isaiah Thomas or Michael Jordan or any of those guys. And without giving you spoilers, the best to me, the best part of last night's documentary was seeing Jordan unable to let go of that grudge and how Isaiah Thomas, the one thing I saw on Twitter so much last night from a bunch of Chicago dudes, sports writers, and even just guys that live up there, usually Chicago will adopt any of their own, even if they go play for another team. It's like if you're a Chicago basketball player, you are forever one of the favored you know, sons of the city. They hate Isaiah. Chicagoans hate their own. And that's just how bad it got between the Bulls and Pistons. Just scrolling through Twitter, I mean, I wasn't, I was trying to avoid spoilers, but scrolling through Twitter, I could see like there was legitimate vitriol from guys like 
I don't know, a Mike Wilbon or something just tweeting about, man, Isaiah Thomas, blankety blank. And I'm like, man, <laughs> I mean, you, like you said, it's 30 years later, but there is no love lost between. And I saw the clips of Jordan watching the watching the thing on the iPad. By the way, I love that the director hands them an iPad with yeah. bits of an interview from someone else. I think that's a brilliant way of doing that. But yeah, I mean, you're right. It's funny how uh, as a juxtaposition of what you just said, and I agree, Harry, about rivalries being very fleeting there seems to be absolutely no love lost between isaiah and his camp of people and jordan is well yeah and, and the way i look at it right now and and it's actually it's kind of funny because uh, and that's why i think it was such a big big deal that um that the way the series and i'll try you know not to give away too many spoilers but um the way the series ended carp uh, when the bulls finally did get over that hump is it, it in that you know, last night on, on SportsCenter, like I had said, they had John Sally on from those Pistons teams. And he said that they did, you know, they hated each other. They hated yeah. each other on the court. But at the same time, it's not the same way as in other sports when one team hates another team. The Eagles and the Giants absolutely hate each other. In, in this, it was the Bulls and the Pistons hate each other, but the teams are so small and it's such a star-driven league that once the game ended usually these guys will be able to go about their their own uh you know kind of separate on the court and off the court and be friends again because a lot of these guys do know each other a lot of these guys are, were friends and still are friends off the court john sally even said him and jordan they talk you know to this day that's why the way that series ended was so strange or not strange was so impactful uh when the bulls finally did win and that's why i thought it was interesting seeing just kind of the difference between, you know, the fact that they're actually, that was a legitimate rivalry that you really don't see a lot anymore. Yeah, and Did I, they talk about the thing where the Pistons just walked off without yes, shaking hands? They, they get yeah, into okay. that big time. That's, and and okay. spoiler alert, Trevor, but uh, one thing that I thought was interesting about Isaiah's explanation for it, which Jordan, and Trevor, you would have seen Jordan just sort of brush that off and say, yeah, right. Yeah. But Isaiah's explanation essentially was twofold. And it seemed to contradict himself a little bit, where one hand he's saying, well, Bill, Bill Ambeer in the huddle said, you know what, let's just let's just go. And then he goes on to say, well, you know, we were thinking about how the Celtics walked off the court without shaking our hands three years prior. And I'm like, well, I don't know if that can, I don't think Bill Ambeer in the spur of a moment was like, hey guys, remember three years ago when the Celtics didn't shake our hands? Let's repeat what they did in some sort of symbolic gesture that we aren't really passing the, <laughs> no. It's as simple as they hated each other, and that's why Jordan rightfully called it out for the BS that it was. I saw something on Twitter today, and I wish I could attribute this, maybe just some random tweeter, but they said there's something about Isaiah Thomas that is off-putting, where he reminds me of Gus Fring from Breaking Bad. Yeah. This calculated... He's got, the, he's got that weird, like, uber kind of smile permanently planted on his face but you don't yeah, really buy it i don't buy it and you know listen we're talking about someone that jordan froze off the dream team which they'll probably talk about in episodes five and six because the dream team is coming up uh next sunday but there is something just not i don't know he's why is he always smiling uh, and it doesn't feel right I, I remember from when he was coaching with the knicks and that was just a terrible tenure that he had with new york that he just always wore that damn smile on his face. And this is, again, coming from someone that didn't grow up with that rivalry. No reason to really dislike Isaiah, but it's like he can't help but being this Gus Fring-like, cold-calculated villain. 
even though he is one of the best basketball players ever, that's the thing that sometimes goes unnoticed with the bad boys is that they were one of the best teams in NBA history, despite their physicality, or maybe because of it. He doesn't look any older either, by the way. I saw a little image of him on Twitter yesterday. I'm like, man, <laughs> he looks like he's five years older than he was in 1990. Well, you know, he doesn't look any older. B.J. Armstrong is 50-some years old. <laughs> he, he looks 30. We have Michael Jordan's mom. She's 80. Yeah, what the heck? She looks like she's 40. She looks like his sister. It's... <laughs> Which I, I know there's an old adage, which, you know, what black don't crack. Apparently that is the case because B.J. Armstrong looks great. Of course, Grant looks great. Scotty Pippen. They all look great, really. Uh, I'm trying to think of the one guy who they, they showed Judd Bushler last night. And even when he was on the Bulls, he just looked like an accountant. No offense to accountants. My parents and my sister are accountants. But <laughs> I did think when they showed him that he just really did not match no, no. any type of stereotypical <laughs> athlete image. I'm like, that guy was on the Bulls. So the one, the one that, and this will dub me. I guess this will just be kind of the end of, of this uh, this adage of who is aged and who hasn't. But um, you know, the one, the the one guy. Uh, I guess I'll just say it. The one, you know, white guy that does look pretty good nowadays, <laughs> as opposed to uh, hey, I'm just throwing it out. No, there. no, no, no. no <laughs> as, you're right. As as opposed to back then is uh, Steve Kerr. Steve yeah. Kerr's aged pretty well. Yes. Uh, Phil Jackson, even though he he's had the white hair for a while, and I know he looks older, but he still has that zen like quality. So even though he looks older, he looks like a healthy old. And yeah, he's he's aged well, but he was also old back when this all was being filmed. Anyway, what cracked me up in the Phil Jackson moving to the Phil Jackson episode, and that's the thing. And Trevor, as you watch these, I think you'll appreciate the way they framed it even more than episodes one and two, three and four blend together, where it feels like each Sunday is going to be a mini movie that there these are going to be pairs of episodes that sort of relate to one another. So they get in the Phil Jackson episode, the great relationship that he had with Rodman because they're both eccentric guys. But Phil Jackson, one really cool little nugget about his coaching career, he went to Puerto Rico and he coached in this Puerto Rican league and he's telling stories about how they used to douse chicken blood over the opponent's bench (laughs) <laughs> that a mayor, I think, shot a referee, a mayor of one of these small towns shot a referee after a game where he didn't like the way it was being called. And But he, he was like, you know, I learned a lot as a head coach there. They won, of course, the title in Puerto Rico in 1981. Then he goes to the CBA. But he is a total stoner, hippie, zen-like. All these sort of uh, yeah. the stereotype that was built up around him is true. But the thing that stuck out to me is just his demeanor, even as someone who's not at all an athlete, thinking if there's a kind of coach I would want to play for, it would be a figure like him at, who doesn't need to be a hard ass and yet commands this respect from everybody in the locker room. So, Harry, as someone who's played for great coaches like Tim Beckman and... <laughs> <laughs> what a transition. <laughs> well, uh... it, 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 I'm trying to imagine if there would be an equivalent of... <laughs> A Phil Jackson for football, because that's a sport that requires physicality and a certain amount of energy that you don't always need for basketball, maybe. But would a character like that translate? I mean, as as someone that's played at a a fairly high level, would that sort of coaching personality be something that you would find yourself gravitating towards? Well, really, the way you got to look at it is how effective is it? I mean, Phil Jackson, what he did worked. If he didn't win, would we still look at it the same way? Absolutely not. So, it, I mean, the only guy I guess that's coming to my head 
because the way you look at Phil Jackson is he is very zen. He is very hippie. He is very players coachy, but he's also stern and he also gets results. And when I say that, the guy that comes to my mind, now everyone will always, you know, the first thing that people will probably equate is uh, Phil Jackson, Bill Belichick. They both win championships. They're not the same guy. The one that I would really say pops into my head might be like a Mike Tomlin, someone who is a player's coach, but we have <clears throat> have seen has gotten results in the past kind of with this more laid-back attitude, very player's coach. Everyone really gets along with him, uh, and, you know, he, he tries to make things work. He tried to make things work with, um, with his, I guess, and this is probably a terrible analogy, but if you want to look at, I guess, the troublemaker from each team, uh, Dennis Rodman is Antonio Brown. He, you know, Jackson made things work with Rodman. Tomlin tried to make things work with Antonio Brown. Obviously, different outcomes, but that would be, I guess, kind of the same comparison. So it can work. I mean, if you have a coach who's trying to be a player's coach on one side, maybe like way too much, like a like a Dick Vermeil or a or a Jerry Glanville, that can have mild success. But it kind of you see it; it's very limited. Whereas someone on the other side of the spectrum, way too stern, it can have its good results, like a, um, you know, like, Bobby, like Knight. A Bill Bel- Bobby Knight or a Bill Belichick. But then also say someone like a Jim Fossil isn't going to get a lot of good results. Jim he's way Fossil, too stern. wow, yeah, no, I, I, very stern. But a lot of a lot of players were not too on board with him, and he didn't get results, so it didn't well, really pan out. So you got to have. A good mix, and that's—I think—that's something that I mean. That—that's what um, that's that's what Jackson was able to do so well is that he got the best out of his players, but he also wanted to relate with them on a personal level. I know it was a joke, Carp, but I mean, in a certain sense, to your point, there is like a Jim Harbaugh, <laughs> right, who's seen as like ridiculous and zany, but at the same time, you know, he's hiding in the recruits' treehouse or whatever, but then he lands the five-star recruit. To the point where, I mean, obviously it didn't work out with Tim Beckman that way. But in the sense that if it did, he would be viewed as sort of like this out there guy that the players like. No one would care if Tim Beckman was going nine and three, right? He'd be like endearing. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I was thinking about Lovey hiding in someone's treehouse and that just doesn't translate. But anything to get anything to get the second commit of this class. There's one, I think, right? One. We'll get into that in a bit. That's a whole other thing. But as we wrap up this discussion, because we still want Trevor to watch it and you know, we are doing a sort of surface level look at this because there is basketball podcasts I've been consuming, you know, even Bill Simmons, who I don't normally listen to, but in the middle of this last dance stuff, guy knows his basketball. So I wouldn't pretend to be a basketball expert. The episode ends with, and this is another great thing they're doing too. They're finding this great balance between structuring it like the 10 part mini series that it is, but also realizing that every Sunday night at 958 central time, you got to leave a little bit of a cliffhanger in there. And they do that with the game against Utah right before the All-Star break. And they begin hinting at what we're going to see in upcoming episodes between Jordan and Scott Burrell. As I'm reading the Jordan rules about 1990-91, Jordan was already a massive uh, crap talker. Is there such a thing? I, I feel so silly when I can't say the bad words on here. I guess I yeah. could. But then I got to go market on Apple Podcasts and it's a whole thing. Uh, but him and Scott Burrell in the plane... He's giving Scott Burrell all this crap and basically says, well, 
you know what are, are, are you hung over and scott like oh come on mike you know my parents might see this he keeps on saying that he's like oh come on mike my parents might see I this. saw that clip and then eventually he's like well they need to know you're an alcoholic and this is what <laughs> <laughs> and he would do this and the players either had to step up and give it right back to him which he respected or if they just sort of took it like scott burrell you know that was his sort of way of trying to toughen these guys up for better or for worse and I know it's macho and it wouldn't play in 2020. It would get a lot of pushback, but Harry, I'll start with you. Do you think that there's something to it? Like in other words, do you think when Jordan was doing this, is it just something he was doing for fun? Or do you think in his mind as this ultra competitor, he's thinking I need to push buttons and see even off the court, how these guys respond. See, that's tough because my initial instinct is just to say no one can be on and thinking like that all the time. And so when I think like that, I think he's – he's, in my opinion, he's probably just having fun with him. He probably sees him as the young kid. He's looking at him, trying to press his buttons, trying to kind of introduce him to the league the same way that he was introduced, give him the business as a rookie or as a young player. Um, the same way that, that we saw Charles Oakley doing to Scottie Pippen in, in either the, I think it was the second episode. So th- that's my initial instinct. But at the same time, he might see him because Scott Burrell was also the guy when they were over in Paris was saying like, hey, can I get a hug? Hey, we just won this, um, this game over in Paris. Uh, they, they called like a championship, even though it wasn't, right, it wasn't right. a McDonald's championship. And then Jordan's saying like, hey, it doesn't matter. This, this doesn't mean absolutely anything. So on the one hand, I think it's just the uh, him giving him the business as the young kid, but I can see it a little bit as of almost a rite of passage, like um, even that just kind of goes back to giving him the business as the young kid, a, a rite of passage to kind of toughen him up so that he can maybe do that for the next generation of players that would come in after him. See now, was that? Oh, go ahead, Trevor. I was just going to ask: Was that Scott Burrell moment last night? Uh, this week's version of what was it the previous week? Everybody on the team was doing cocaine except me. <laughs> Where Mrs. Burrell is sitting at home and she's right. like, "Excuse me." Yes, no, uh, Mrs. Burrell <laughs> did not. She was probably enjoying the whole thing. I do wonder if the filmmakers, hey Scott, uh, just to let you know, episode four at the end of it. You know, you I- would have to think so, right? Like if Jordan <sighs> randomly in the middle of his interview just started, as you would say, crap talking some random person you'd think they'd have to let them know like hey this is gonna come out yeah you would think so or just as a courtesy like hey by the way this is coming up you wouldn't have to change anything in the documentary but just say you know this will be in it and let them know but now now i would watch an entire documentary by the way of just jordan crap talking oh i know i know it's fantastic and i mean they could just sit down with him like a bulleted list of names and i'd just watch him talk about each one of them and i know it's not morally right but it's true you understand Oops, why I know, I know you understand though, why people wanted to surround themselves in his circle. Like they wanted to be around him because he is this magnetic guy. Uh, even when he is sort of distant and aloof, everyone's like, well, where's Michael? What's Michael doing? And it makes sense why. Uh, but now it also makes sense why Lon always gives us the business in the studio back in the day where he would just <laughs> make fun of everybody. I think he was just trying to make sure that we were at the top of our game. He was pushing us to be better, not just giving us crap. Yeah, maybe so. Maybe so. Interesting theory. I'll ask Lon about that. I'm getting him on the podcast on Thursday. He can do. He can Zoom, actually. Nifty. So I know. Nifty indeed. 
let's transition out of this because we got uh, plenty more last dance to go. So you know, again, we're, we'll talk about this. I think what we can do each Sunday or each Monday that we gather is bring your quote of the episode. I didn't mention this to you guys beforehand, but I'll let you know what quote stood out to me that I thought in three words was the most memorable moment in the entire two episodes. Harry, would you like to take a guess what those three words were and who said them? <sighs> was it in the first or the second episode? That's a good question. They gotta... blended they blended together well. I want to say the second. It was it was at the end of the Pistons Bulls segment. Hmm. If it's what you're thinking of, it popped on my Twitter timeline around nine thirty. So yeah, Horace Grant. Also, uh, Hor- Horace Grant. Yes. Hmm. Uh, you can go I ahead and say know, it too. I I don't I do not remember what it was, but I also at the same time have the memory of like my brain is scrambled eggs. You okay. guys know this. He, so I, I, I don't remember. <laughs> he's he is For lack of a better term. talking about the Pistons walking off the court, not shaking hands. And keep in mind, because in this book I'm reading, back around like eighty nine, nineteen ninety, Horace Grant and Scottie Pippen, they were really good friends. They party together. Horace Grant's marriage was not going well. And he became kind of like a born again Christian. Very spiritual, very religious always known as one of the nicest guys in the NBA. If you looked at his polo last night, it says NBA cares. So he's one of the main guys in their charity organization. And here's this spiritual, religious, charitable guy. And in three words, he says straight up bitches about the Pistons. I remember that. And I immediately, I'm texting my dad kind of throughout. And I remember a bit of the first three Pete and Horace was a somewhat underrated player. He was a very good NBA player at the four but also known for being this really nice guy. I just thought that that showed you the vitriol between these two teams that here's not necessarily Ned Flanders, but a really nice guy just saying straight up bitches about the Pistons and that. And also Ron Harper talking about when his coach said, that one was good. That we're going to have, good. we're going to have Craig Elo guard Jordan and Ron Harper is like, okay, okay. well, whatever yeah. F that, you know, and the way he said it was just so, Okay, matter of fact, fine coach, whatever, do what you got to do. Uh, so, the Trevor, thing, oh yeah, go ahead, Harry. The one thing I thought was really interesting that they said, because you always see, um, you know, obviously this, it had it had that, the uh, the shot against Cleveland, um, and it shows that iconic image of him jumping up and, uh, and pumping his hands as Craig Ewell literally faints to the floor in the back. Like, is there a more cinematic scene just aside no. a more cinematic scene in all of sports i mean you put that on the same level as joe montana okay joe montana throwing a ball over three giant dallas cowboys one of which named two tall jones effectively <laughs> ending that dynasty yeah. like throwing this ball you see the ball perfectly just kind of plastered against the uh, the backdrop of us of the uh, the blue sky and dwight clark going up grabbing it then it shows the uh, the ref putting his hands up, touchdown, game's over. Well, game's not over, but game's effectively over. They win that. I put that on the same level as Jordan gets the ball, grabs it, puts it up. You see it go straight in. There's not a straighter shot than, that has ever been shown than that shot. Goes in, zoomed, like pans over to him. He's jumping up, pumping his hands, and then Craig Ewell literally falling to the ground in the background. Now, that looks cinematic. He looks super pumped. I never knew what he was shouting. And, and you oh, know, like, God. The, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. like, he shot, you're just thinking he's shouting, you're like, yeah, let's go, let's go. 
<laughs> no, he was because they said like, yeah, f u m fers take that, u m fers go m fing home. I was just thinking, wow, I've seen this shot as like a Gatorade commercial. I've seen this in all these different places. I never knew there was such adult language going on in this iconic scene. They really hit heavy on the F word last night. All, all the players involved. I think oh, Phil yeah. Jackson was the I only was one. I was going to ask if there were more F-bombs in, oh, in wow. those episodes. They, they, they were, and great. I told Carp this before we started, it was it was very gratuitous at a point. Like, like okay, <laughs> I, I, I appreciate a good F word here and there. And they had some impactful ones, like Ron Harper, like Horace Grant. But I mean, then you have like Jordan, just an absolute potty mouth at some points <laughs> in this episode, just saying the F word because he knows he can. What's well, sort of like in episode one when he's talking about how his mom wouldn't send the effing postage to pay the effing telephone bill. And it was like, Jordan, Jesus, man, chill. <laughs> Calm you know. down. Uh, yeah, one one final image, too. I mentioned quote of the night, and as we watch the next few Sundays, always think about the one quote that sticks out for you, and we'll probably have some similar responses as we go forward. At the end of episode three, they show Rodman. This is, And they set it up perfectly, too. It's leading into the Vegas trip, which blends in or bleeds into the Jackson episode. But they show Rodman after a game. He's got his leather jacket on. He's got a Miller Lite, which I think was his post-game routine, just downing a Miller Lite on the way out of the stadium. And then he immediately gets on his motorcycle to drive home. And again, not to do this whole, well, this couldn't happen in 2020. But on the other hand, if that video that we see at the end of episode three of Rodman walking out, downing a beer before hopping on his motorcycle to presumably drive very fast on the Dan Ryan you know, home or wherever he was going, probably to O'Hare, I think, to go to Vegas. That would get so much crap. And yet I'm watching this, and I know I should not romanticize that. But I can't help it. I cannot help but romanticize the image of Rodman drinking a beer, getting on his motorcycle, total rock star badass. And I'm thinking, man, I know this guy's a severe alcoholic, and that's not good. But why do we romanticize these sorts of behaviors? Jordan being a jerk, Rodman being a decadent, a sort of reckless individual. Why do we, or, or Pippin, no Tippin Pippin as he's known in Chicago for being really cheap. <laughs> hey, he didn't make his money. He has yeah, every right to be. Exactly. Why I've do, never heard that. Why before. do we allow these guys, why do we allow their foibles, their weaknesses to become part of their mystique and only enhance our image? To me, I'm finding all these guys' human weaknesses they're making them only more relatable in a way and more uh, not idolizing. I'm beyond idolizing these guys, but I certainly am finding myself liking them more and more than I even well, did as a kid. Well, it is interesting because, I mean, I, again, I haven't watched last night fully yet, but Jordan's sort of like quote that was leaked out before this came out was, I'm really worried that everybody's perception of me is going to change in, in the sense that, he, what do you say? I'm worried everybody's going to hate me yeah. or something like that. I, I I can't speak for everyone, but so far it seems like all that's happened is people adore him even more. Yeah, I mean I don't see anyone on Twitter going, "Oh man, this ruins Michael Jordan for me." Yeah, and, and I think I think the reason that we kind of, like you said, Carp, why we romanticize these images of who they are has a lot to do with the fact that we don't know who they were back then in entirety because there wasn't any social media. We see what 
the media shows us about Dennis Rodman of him being this badass and him drinking and driving off on a motorcycle. So if that's our only image of him and we like what he does on the basketball court, then we have no reason not think that um, that that's cool. You know, like the same thing with goes with Jordan. He is the most beloved guy, the most famous person on the planet at that point. And uh, and then anything we see off the court of him being the ultimate winner, the uh, you know, the stern guy, the tough guy the hard ass, then we're going to associate that with him being cool because we have no other frame of reference. Yeah, true. All right, so we'll, we'll leave it at there for the last dance. Before I let you guys go, we'll talk a little bit about Illinois sports. I want to start with football. Bad news first, and then, then the good news. What for good Illinois news? Basketball. Well, no, no good news necessarily, but just I would say bad vibes, good vibes, meaning bad vibes for Illinois football and overall good vibes for Illinois basketball. Even oh, though- I thought you meant good news, bad news for Illinois football. I see. No, there is no good news for Illinois football. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> So as we sit here today, and Trevor, I, I need want to confirm this, but it's one commit, correct? One commit thus far in the 2021 class. Um, let me pull it up here so I don't get it wrong, but I believe you're correct. Now, are we not are we not going to hit at all on our uh, our two teams? Just wonderful drafts. Uh, I mean, you know, honestly, in in the Bears' defense, I know there's a lot of tight ends, and it's easy. And I even did it myself. Thursday. There's a lot of tight ends. An eighth of their roster is tight ends. I mean, you you can't even field an entire team of how many, like, tight ends that you have. I mean, if you did, you'd have one more position out there, quarterback. The rest would be tight ends. But I will say this. With the NFL draft, and this is why the NFL draft has never really fired me up that much, even though I remember when Shane McClellan was picked, and I even thought at that point, why? And I, I don't know enough to say whether or not that was a good pick or not. Clearly, it was not as time went on. But I never get that high or low about the NFL draft just because well, we don't know. We don't know until they're on the field. And I'm right. sure there's been guys that they think are bust that all of a sudden turn out to be pro bowlers. So with the Bears picks in that second round, getting the tight end and the cornerback, I'm thinking, you know, what? if these guys pan out, they needed someone to take over for uh, Prince of Mukamara. They need an impactful tight end. And the, the, to me, the draft isn't the issue. Signing Jimmy Graham to some stupid two-year deal when Eric Ebron is getting a third of it, that, that, that pisses me off. But drafting a guy that maybe he pans out to be a really good tight end, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll wait and see on it. The, the Jalen Hurts thing doesn't make a whole lot of sense, though, for the Eagles. <laughs> Yeah, I, 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 Trevor, I, I'll let you go, and then, like, well, you have I, to go, yeah. I was just going to say, for me, it's more, uh, you know, I, I, someone came out and said, well, the Bears' seventh-round pick was a D-plus, and it's like, how do you even possibly we know? Don't, you know, know what I mean? I mean, it's, yeah. it's a seventh-round offensive lineman. You're giving him a D-plus. I mean, how can you even grade that? For me, it's more like you look at the approach than the picks, because, you know, it'd be silly for us to sit here and go, boy, that that uh, offensive lineman out of uh, Kennesaw State or wherever <laughs> from the seventh round, uh, I think that's a fireable offense. You know, I, I don't know. But for me, it's more so just the frustrating carp you mentioned. Uh, just looking at value, like Trent Williams, okay? He's like an all-pro an all pro offensive lineman. What did he right. get? They, they traded him to the 49ers for a third and a fifth. And then the Bears essentially trade one of their picks for a fourth. And I'm just thinking like, okay, so they get another fifth round pick for about the exact same value as they would have gotten for an all pro player. For me, it's more so just the approach that was frustrating than, Agreed. than, than the specific players picked. And, and Ryan Pace right now does not have the benefit of the doubt. His draft record is not good. 
And especially the more high-profile draft picks, his first-round picks weren't good, so I don't mind that he doesn't get first-round picks because well, I was gonna what, say, what it's would he do? The, f- the fourth-round picks have been great, more or yeah, less, like true. an Anthony Miller or somebody like that, and then the first-round picks have been awful. Yeah, and I mean, you guys just said it. I mean, I can't speak as much to Ryan Pace, but um, you know, when, when, when you look at your team in year in, year out, and I'm, I, I fall into this trap of year in, year out, the Eagles make their draft picks early on. And for the most part, I raise my eyebrows and say, what the hell are you doing? And then I try to tell myself, you know what? They're the experts. They probably know way more than I do. Then I come back around and say, wait a minute. Last year it didn't work. The year before that it didn't work. Why the hell should I think it's going to work now? If I'm questioning it again for the fourth year in a row, what makes me think that Jalen Rager is the right receiver to take when no one said he was? And why the hell are you taking a quarterback? And, and then, uh, so that's why it's hard for me to say, yeah, maybe they know what they're doing because they haven't in the past. Yeah. It is annoying when you give, I mean, it, it is a bit of, a, of an annoying, um, I don't know if cliche is the right word, but default to assume that a front office of a sports team just automatically has the benefit of the doubt for what they're doing, right? Yes, absolutely. They, they do it first. They do it first when it's early on because then you can say, we don't know what this front office is thinking and they right. certainly do when they have a proven track record of taking guys and that that maybe people don't think will be great that turn into say that diamond in the rough i don't know anyone off the top of my head but if an organization does that year in year out on the regular i think maybe the steelers do that or something maybe they'll raise some eyebrows sometimes but they always i think the ravens do that too more or less yeah looking pretty good and looking pretty smart so they get the benefit of the doubt you don't when you take Nelson Aguilar. You don't when you take Kenny Watkins. You don't <laughs> when you take Marcus Smith or De- or uh, Nelson Aguilar, Derek Barnett, or uh, it's, uh, it's clockwork. <laughs> so Jalen Hurts, you like the pick? Yeah. No, yeah, I love it. Listen, it adds depth. <laughs> yeah. It adds depth at the most important position on the field. Stop Did it. you see that Adam Schefter tried to Adam Schefter tried to qualify it by saying that people are concerned that their quarterback might get coronavirus? Oh yeah, that's a good. Oh, well, you never it, know. It, it, it's just it's 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 asinine because here's the thing, and I don't want this to come off that I don't. Okay, you're, I want to say this as just a blanket statement. Okay, I hate the pick. Of Jalen Hurts, but, <laughs> but 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 I absolutely love Jalen Hurts, the football player, hmm. and that's what bothers me so much is that you have a quarterback in Carson Wentz who I think is twenty six or twenty seven. This is a young guy. This is a guy that if he could ever stay healthy, could play for the next eight to ten years and be one of the better quarterbacks in the entire National Football League. I would be fine, though, if you went out there. Maybe you think you don't have a good backup. Go out there in the fourth or fifth round and take a guy you know is going to be your backup for the future. I almost have more of a problem taking a guy who has proven he could be a star-level talent in the NFL that early because then you are putting a seed of doubt in your franchise player. You are paying that much money that you don't have faith in him. Whether or not it has to do with what he can do on the field or if he can stay on the field, now he's thinking, well, crap, if I get hurt, this guy's going to come in. 
I've seen what he can do in college. He might be able to take my job. This isn't some scrub. This isn't like going out and getting Clayton Thorson in the seventh round. This isn't like going out there and getting, getting uh, Nate Sudfeld, who they've done. This is you're getting a Heisman finalist. You're getting someone who has been to multiple national championships, was one game away from a national championship last year. You're going out there and getting someone who can compete for your starting job. It's it's It boggles my mind how they could do this and mess with this kid's head and just absolutely – I mean, I told I told Austin this. Austin is the Eagles um, – he is the Eagles optimist, not so much as my brother who's the Eagles apologist who's trying to rationalize this to me. He doesn't agree with it even, so that's how I know it's bad, but he's trying to rationalize <laughs> it. But yeah. I told Austin – I told Austin – so I says to the guy. Yeah. So I says to Austin. So I says to him. In 2017, we win the Super Bowl. The next two years, maybe people see as kind of letdowns. Even though you still are in contention in True. the playoffs, they still play pretty well. I said, I I do. This is the first time I've believed, and everyone's window is so small. Uh, this is the first time I believe this will mark the date of the beginning of the end of the Eagles, uh, like chance of the Super Bowl for wow. the near future. You just described the Cubs. Yeah. <laughs> hey, and the great thing is neither the Cubs nor the Eagles are probably going to play a game this year. So, hey, it yeah. uh, all works it's out. So, it sort of is like the football equivalent of like an, I'm not saying, but if I were saying, you know, by drafting another quarterback, you know yeah. what I mean? Because it's yeah. like... It, you know, if you asked anybody, they'd say, well, Carson Wentz is our starter. But it's like, yeah, but what you're saying, what you're doing are telling two different stories, or at least, like you said, planting that seed of doubt. Yeah, God, it's, it's, I called my dad as soon as, and then you guys got the, um, the, 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 the voice message from me because it's almost <laughs> like it, it just, it, I was so startled. I was, I was on, I was looking at it on my phone. I was doing something else. Um, and where I just kind of had it on, and I wanted to come over and see what was going to be the pick. And I wanted A.J. Epinesa. I know that defensive line wasn't necessarily a pressing need for the Eagles, but that's who I wanted. So that's yeah. the name I was kind of telling myself he was going to say. And then he says a name. He says Jalen Hurts. And it was so out of left field but so recognized that I had to take a minute to say, I've heard this name a million times. Why don't I know who this is off the top of my head? And then it, it hit me. It's, well, because this makes no sense. It's because yeah. this is the most con- – <laughs> oh, my. I'm not going to keep going on and on. It's like you wanted, you wanted to say who, but you yeah. knew who. It yeah, was more exactly. Like, yeah, weird. Hmm. Exactly. It's like, yeah, yeah. Well, to che- <laughs> cheer you up a little bit, Harry, uh, uh, how many how many commits does Illinois football have again, Trevor? All right, so they got one three-star Jamal Collier. Collier. Wow, that's weird because that's the same name as the writer for the Washington Nationals that went to U of I, Jamal Collier. Oh, I'm sorry, his name is Samari. Samari Collier. Okay, I I must have had Jamal in my head because I yeah, yeah, saw yeah. that guy on Twitter. Okay, uh, so Samari Collier, fourteenth in the Big Ten. Uh, let's see, eighty-eighth in the nation. No. But if you go by star rating instead of quantity, <laughs> yeah, okay. They're 85th. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I tell you what. Listen, I said this last summer, and it was just during a Tay and Carp show when recruiting, again, was at a standstill, which is so often is with Lovey. 
And I know that they got Brandon Peters. I know they got Wally Batico, which, oops, didn't get drafted. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> Whoopsie daisy. Uh, and then he got Reggie Corbin, which I feel awful for that, and I hope that he sticks somewhere. Same with Batiku, but, you know, you get these grad transfers that are impactful. You got Joshua Matterbebe coming back this year or next spring, whenever they play. And fine, that was a Band-Aid. This ain't working. It's not working. The budget constraints that the DIA is going to be facing, along with every other athletic department, they will not be able to make a move. We're stuck. We are stuck with Lovey Smith. This program is dead. I, 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 I refuse. I refuse to say anything about Illinois football. All we saw was an average season, and nothing's changed since then. All we've had since then is bad recruiting, which is what we've had for the in infinite history of Illinois football. So this is no surprise to me. I, but this I is have, this is historic Carp, levels. I could, do, of I could do a whole that. podcast on this. Honestly, I could. I yeah. mean, I, I just. You look at the stats from last year. I mean, there's a list of them. I actually have it in notes on my phone hmm. because it's just absurd. Here's some of the bullet points. Okay. When weighed against record, I'm talking about last year, six and seven. When weighed against record, Illinois has had the worst recruiting performance amongst all Big Ten teams and all bowl teams. That means any team with six wins or seven, any team that was bowl eligible mm-hmm. recruited better than Illinois. You're talking yes. Eastern Michigan, anyone else who went to a bowl game. Okay, so that, that's one number for you. Illinois was number one in the PFF, which is pro football focus, luck rating in college football last year, which, hey, awesome. I'm sure the Illinois football account will be happy to tweet out the graphic, number one with Lovey standing next to it. But it was number one in luck. Okay, okay Illinois right. out. Here's the final one. <laughs> Illinois outperformed their expected wins, which was 4.3, more than any other team in the country. Again, that's awesome that that happened. But you're looking at that and going, that is as peak lovey ball as it's going to get. You were Correct. number one in luck rating. You were in the top five in the nation in almost every turnover statistic. And you finished under 500, including a home loss to a one-win Northwestern team. And that was the season where you go, that is as lucky and as good as it gets. Trevor, there's a tweet that Illinois Athletics had. And I want to get your guys' thoughts on this because it was about most memorable moment of the last sports year for Illinois sports. It so they was the had, gymnastics one for me, by the way. Yeah, I voted for that one too. Okay, and, good. <laughs> so we had two for the football season, understandably, the Wisconsin win and the Michigan State comeback, which still is one of the best comebacks I've ever seen. I'm not going to argue that. It was amazing. Those games were awesome. I'm not trying to take anything away from those games. And then the basketball representative that they had on there was the game winner at... Michigan. Michigan, correct. Or did they have the Wisconsin, the win at Wisconsin? No, Which, it was, Michigan. It was, it was Michigan. Michigan. Okay, that's right. So it was it was the buzzer beater at Michigan. I voted for that in all honesty. I'm sorry, Trevor. I, I really thought hard about voting for the men's gymnastics one. And women's gymnastics. Whichever, sorry. Okay, so I can't I can't believe you did that. I that was by <laughs> far the best thing the, the best play of the year. I oh well. Whatever. Was it the pommel horse or the floor routine? Which what was it? Uh, I thought it was the flippity flop. Ah, the flip, okay. Yeah. I like the curly cue uh, almost as much. It's, it's not bad. The crazy eight is pretty good. <laughs> I just I remember sitting in my seat at home watching that, going, "I can't believe what I just saw." <laughs> 
I just think of the crazy eight is a giant like blue mat and they're running in a figure eight as fast as they can. Uh, the jungle gym was pretty cool too. I was watching that on BTN plus and the student announcers were losing their minds. I, I just imagine like that. if there was ESPN, the Ocho that there's BTN plus divide sign. Umlaut. <laughs> I was BTN PEMDAS. I was watching the square root of BTN the other day, and they have some good content on there. BTN infinite, but the B is turned sideways, so it's like a little infinity symbol. Oh my god! For forty nine ninety nine a month, and on that they actually they get middle schoolers to call those games. All right, so. Here's here's what I had said, and I know it's semantics. I know it's semantics, but I voted for the basketball thing. I retweeted out and said, I went with this basketball moment because it reaffirmed that this team was on the rise and would stay there. It's an indelible image from one of the best Illini basketball players in my lifetime. It has staying power. So when we're talking about moments and memories, and I I've focused on the word moment because, Harry, you mentioned earlier, the moment of Jordan getting that shot over Craig Elo doesn't mean as much if Jordan does not go on to win six NBA titles. It doesn't. It's just a cool shot. It means something because that was a sign that this Bulls thing was here to stay and that they were going to go on and eventually win championships, and they did. For Illinois basketball, the reason that moment is going to stick in our minds as long as Brad Underwood and the staff continue to do what they're doing is because that was an arrival moment. We are back. We're here to stay. As much as I love that Michigan State comeback, um, the thing is, just sort of like the Tyler Griffey shot against Indiana, John Gross didn't do crap. So that shot, frankly, I don't need to see it. It doesn't do anything for me anymore. Just like I'm afraid that that Illinois-Michigan State comeback, when we're sitting here in 2021 and we open with a drubbing to Nebraska in Dublin, don't even get me started on that, that we'll be thinking, who gives a crap? about the Michigan State comeback. It won't mean anything if this is what the staff is doing with recruiting. It's a joke. Drubbing oh, more like Dublin. Oh. He did it. He uh, did this it. game is in Dublin. <laughs> we me, are in trouble. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a good one. That takes the cake. For me, um, and I might have a different point of view on this, but for me, it's, 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 uh, it's the Wisconsin one, and quite frankly, it's not even close because – you look yeah, at the, you. Mich- the Michigan State one is a great comeback, but it's against a team in Michigan State that was not even ranked and that I don't even think was bowl eligible at the time. They fired their coach. Yeah. I mean, you, you want to say what you will about him, quote unquote, walking away. No, they fired him. And, and it, it was against a very pedestrian team that you shouldn't have been down by 25 to in the first place. Not taking anything away. Great comeback, great game. And I thought it was awesome. Uh, I thought it was obviously one of the best moments I've seen in Illinois football history. And then for the Michigan game, likewise, it was a close game where your star hit a shot over an average team this year. Say what you will about Michigan. Say what you will about it being at Michigan. Average team. The Wisconsin game, that's an all-timer because that's against a top-six team that at that point had what? they And we forget, had they given up a point in the second half? 
I don't think in they the, had. In the, fir- in the first half, they hadn't allowed a touchdown, and I don't think they yeah. did have a point in a fourth quarter. Yeah, exactly. So you, I think, scored as many or more points than they had given up that year, which is an absolute. Or no, no, because they had the uh, they had the Northwestern game, right? But you, I mean, you had absolutely exploded past expectations for that, and not only kept it close, but you were able to gut out the toughest win against one of the best teams. That the next week they get beat by Ohio State. Aside from that, they lose to Ohio State, and then they lose to Oregon in the Rose Bowl. This is not a a fluky, I mean, it might have been a fluky win, but it's not some team that was 5-0, and they come in there, they lose, they finish 8-4, and or like 7-5. and They lose to other really good teams, and you were able to beat them. So, I mean, as far as for me, that's why that was absolutely just, I mean, buries the other ones. Hmm. Even, albeit that, uh, that, that <laughs> the, the crazy swan dive figure eight that was the uh, women's gymnastics. <laughs> well, I, I don't even know how fluky it was, though. I mean, I kind of walked away from that game. If you think about it, going, yeah, I mean, Illinois kind of deserved to win that game, right? I oh mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Remember afterwards on the uh, two hundred level after that, we said they were the better team after that game, right? Whereas after the Michigan State game, I mean, come on, no one is sitting there going <laughs> Illinois deserved to yeah. win that game. Yeah, but I just think for me, the thing that stuck out with that, and and Jeremy responded, and he was like, "Man, you're so macro," and I was like, "Yeah, I mean, that's what I. That's certainly it's hard it. not to be though. Right? It's hard. It's hard not to be, and I think what the frustration." And I mentioned the Tyler Griffey example. That team went on to make an NCAA tournament. So that at least, it had an impact. Just like these moments of beating Wisconsin at home and the comeback against Michigan State got you in a bowl game. So it did have an impact. It had a short-term benefit. But John Gross is not able to capitalize on that. Apparently, Lovey Smith is not only not able to capitalize on it, but is overseeing the worst, as you said, Trevor, for any bowl-eligible team, the worst recruiting class out of all of them. And we acknowledge that... COVID-19, all these weird circumstances. But you can't tell me that if you remove the pandemic from the occasion, yeah. uh, uh. from the equation, sorry, that all of a sudden, oh, things are going to be guns blazing and we're going to be out recruiting other teams. I don't need him to recruit as good as P.J. Fleck. Listen, we screwed the pooch. We should have hired P.J. Fleck. He was out there. I know that it took one more 10-win season Western Michigan before a team took a chance on him, but there was no reason not to take that chance on a college football-y, coach coach, right? But instead, we're sitting here with just a lethargy that no other Big Ten program is dealing with. Even Rutgers has Greg Schiano, and they have hope. We don't. We're stuck with one more middling season ahead where they'll go five and seven. Maybe they'll get that crazy one to go six and six. And then what? Nothing. Well, the focus is on P.J. Fleck coming into your state in the middle of COVID. I know he didn't actually come into the state because he's at home and taking, what was it, four four-star recruits. But Purdue has taken two. And I know nobody's talking about that, but that is so maddening when you consider you beat Purdue, what was it, 24-9 to nine or something like that, 24-6? to was, six? But it was really like a shutout because yeah. they had that garbage time touchdown. Right. And it's just that is what frustrates the hell out of me is like this is your year to capitalize on being better than a team like Purdue in recruiting. Forget Minnesota, like you said, Carp. I mean, I've already accepted that he's just going to out recruit you there. But why are you getting out recruited by two win Northwestern or a Purdue team that you whooped? Like I, that's what's frustrating. Like the whole point of a bowl eligible team, a top 10 facility, like the whole point of that is to beat the teams. You know, you, you, you went from below average 
So now you're right on par, if not a little bit above average on the playing field in terms of everything other than the on-field product. So you got that. Yeah. You're, you're basically almost above average without the on-field product. Then the on-field product gets you to a bowl game. And those two things combined give you the worst recruiting class. <laughs> I know, I know. And and to me, Trevor, I actually I went on a run yesterday and they have the um they were working construction on the whole pathway between the Smith Football Center and Memorial Stadium and the, and the Arc. They were doing construction on that, but now it's wide open. So I was able to actually run along the east side of the stadium and see, you know, the practice field, which is in great shape. And then they got the Smith Football Center, which is really a beautiful facility. And thinking, all right, just like you said, we're, we're there in terms of facilities. We are there and in the upper echelon of the Big Ten when you consider the Smith Football Center. And we made a bowl game, and yet there's zero momentum. And I'm thinking it just takes a remarkable amount of ineptitude to not even be able to fall ass backwards into a few recruits after something like this. And they aren't doing it. And what scares me is that we had our questions the way the season ended. You know, whether it be the last two games of the year, even though after Iowa, we felt pretty good. But the Northwestern Red Box Bowl, even as down as I felt about that, I'm also a bit of a cynic when it comes to Illinois football. So I gravitated towards, ah, that was that might be a mirage. It may be a fluke. But for high school athletes to already buy into this, seemingly buy into this idea that, you know what, what Illinois did last year, I'm not buying it. That is troublesome. That means that no one, if the high school players aren't buying it, that means no one bought the idea that Lovey Smith resurrected Illinois football, and I want to go play for that, even with all their awesome facilities and their bowling lanes and their mini golf course. I don't want don't to do it. At the barbershop. And the barbershop when the sheltered right, place though, is I mean, done. Think about, think about like, what was it, after the 3-9 and nine season, you had all – there was a sudden rush where Beeson committed, Isaiah Williams committed, Suddenly, all these guys, all these five-star recruits that you couldn't even dream of. Now, they don't end up coming here, but all of them start tweeting like, Liddyville, Illini Gang, like, this is awesome. I'm going to visit Illinois. They had, like, a barbecue one weekend where they got, like, five five-star Georgia guys to come. And you're like, what the hell? And yeah. this is during the three and nine season. Mm-hmm. And it just it blows my mind that the recruiting could be better at that point than it is now. I just, I don't get it. Because you got to sell, you have two stages right ron zook when he came in here and credit to him was able to sell playing time and hope and he's a great recruiter i mean he was just a fantastic recruiter when he came to illinois that was a strength we knew that hiring him we knew the coaching thing well maybe he'll learn maybe he won't and then that parlayed in, into some really great recruiting classes that led to god they only made one bowl didn't they? well i mean yes they made two later but in in that stretch between 07 and 09 when all these players were coming in at first it led to the rose bowl Right. And then and two you went bowls five and seven, and you went three and nine. Yes, which that killed it, and that that hurt his recruiting, and that was a strength. But he was able to sell hope and playing time. So Lovey Smith was able to do that too, to an extent. He was able to, and then his first class of the Bennett Williams and the Lou Dorseys of the world. You saw these signs, and and there's still guys, the seniors that are on this team that that was a decent class. But then you get into the two and ten year, the second year, right? Ugh, that was awful. And then you get into the four and eight doldrums of was it four and eight? I think it's thirty or they were four and eight. Yeah, but you're still getting like four slash five star Virtus Brown. Yeah, that's true. I don't know where and the so disconnect I, is. I just I don't understand it because I, I you know I think Jeremy was right a few weeks ago when you had him on when he said the talent is better. Like I I, I don't disagree that there is more NFL type potential talent on this roster than there was on this roster four years ago. 
but projecting forward, there's just none. There's none I at just, all. There's not even a team. <sighs> and here's the, what, what? the the scary thing is that you get too deep into this. Good luck getting out. You, you're going to be facing a budget shortfall because there will not be people in stands in the fall. This is going to trickle down to the non-revenue sports that already have a hard time operating under the budget. Even with TV deals and everything, if there's no games with fans in the stands first, that kills you. If there's no games, period, kills you even more. And I'm thinking root of BTN gives you a lot of revenue, by the way. Continue. <laughs> so my concern is twofold. One, that you won't be able to fire him. Okay. Let's say they stink this year whenever they play the games. You won't be able That's to fire him because you can't. That, yeah. And then you're stuck. And that two, if you are in fact stuck with him, the recruiting is not magically going to pick up. It's not like you can conjure momentum out of thin air with nothing to show for it. And you are just digging yourself all the way to 2025, 2026 before you can even sniff respectability again. Football, what what makes it harder for me to latch on to college football, apart from being an Illinois football fan, is that it is so hard to dig out of something. College basketball, we saw it. You get Io DeSumo, two years later, you're making the damn tournament, if there were a tournament. Uh, but you see how quickly momentum can shift in basketball. Not so with football. It's right. just not, unless you get a freak guy like P.J. Fleck, who's constantly, you know, zonked out on Adderall or whatever it is. And <laughs> I guess my only hope would be that this year is like eight and four level good. And I guess at some point during that year, a bunch of guys that would have say, to be, you it. know, well, what the heck I'm going to hop on that. That's really the only way this goes well. Right. But do we, we, we don't see that happening. I mean, there's too many holes on this team that there, there mean, is I, the individual talent I mean, that is been, improvement. But we've been saying that this is the team though, that I mean, and this is just aside from the recruiting that's going on right now, which I'm not as in, you know, in tune with as you guys are or as, as anyone is. It's hard to be in tune when there's only one recruit, Harry. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. But I mean, you know, as far as just looking at what's on the field, you got a lot of guys coming back and we've been looking at, um, at this next year as the year that you got to make some hay. Uh, yeah, you should probably be capitalizing more so on what you consider your best year in, in quite some time, unfortunately. But at the same time, I mean, this is really the year that you got to, you know, get your work done. And you had a couple bad games there to finish the year. I think the Northwestern one was absolutely dreadful. The Red Box Bowl, I mean, weren't expected to win that. You probably could have put up a little bit more of a fight. But I didn't think they put out an absolutely awful showing. I mean, there hasn't been a ton, I guess, and this is how I differ from you guys, there hasn't been a ton to really dissuade me to think that I am not – thinking that this year could possibly be it should be as good as last year and i think i mean if you're ever going to win seven or eight games it should be this year i mean you right. got well, most of the people coming back from last year why shouldn't you be able to go out there and win seven or eight games if this is where everything comes together because you got four gimmies they really should be right out the gate i was going to say also the schedule you need to be five and one yeah yeah i just when you have, you, you, you have you have uh, UConn at home, which I wouldn't hold my breath about that one if UConn football exists at that That's point. That's true. You've got Illinois State at home. You've got what was it Bowling Green? Bowling at home. Green. Then yep, you go Rutgers. at then you then you go at Rutgers, and then you've got I'm missing one in there. But you should be five and one, and then there's a trip to Nebraska in there too. Yeah. So I mean, you got uh, here's the revenge. Thing. You got you got four. You have four games out the gate that you should be. Four and zero. Okay, mm-hmm. then, then I mean, 
then it just depends on is this the year where everything comes together so that in your last what would that be then in your last eight games you can go 500 i mean even if you go three and five Right there, that should be enough for what can be seen. But you know what, Harry? A good year. We we've done the equation thing just like we did last year, assuming they go three and zero. Somehow they still found their way to six and six, despite starting two and one with that loss to Eastern Michigan. Those easy equations they they just never seem to pan out for some reason. Yeah, well they don't. But this is the year where I mean, they we needed them to give us something to believe in last year, and even though the year ended poorly. There should be enough coming back. That's what I just keep getting back to is that I haven't seen anything really since the season ended to think that that um, you can't be at least as good as last year. And with a more favorable schedule, one more win I don't think is me being too crazy. I'm not even the optimist. You guys know me. I'm not optimistic. I'm, I'm very realistic. I try to even out the room. But that's why I'm saying – I don't see what really has changed so far. The recruiting is a long-term concern. As far as this year, I don't see what the problem is. To, to me, Harry, it's the luck factor that Trevor mentioned, which maybe they come out and they have just as many turnovers or takeaways as they did last year. That'd be great. It's the luck factor. It's also the defensive line and lack of proven commodities at running back. Where Dre Brown was your rock last year. And as Reggie Corbin, I know he struggled for his senior year, and it was just kind of a weird lack of rhythm for him last year. But I think the defensive line is the big concern. They got some guys. Maybe it works. Maybe it doesn't. But really, I just focus on the fact that we have this wide um, body of evidence for Lovey Smith at Illinois. And they did get six wins last year, and a couple of them in spectacular fashion. But when it wasn't going well, it still was bad, and especially defensively. And it's hard for me to imagine that this team is going to have the consistency required to get every win that we count on them getting and to still find their way to other wins. And, and But you know what complicates it? Or maybe maybe not complicates it, but it makes it sort of like, well, why am I getting all ticked off about it now? Is who knows when or if these games will even be played. So it's like yeah. this year could come and go and there's no games and just whatever. But Yeah, I mean, I... I'd almost, Harry, to your counter, I, it's kind of like the Bears, in, in my opinion. I mean, going into this past year, I would say exactly what Harry just said. Why would I think they're going to be any worse? They haven't lost anybody. Right. The defense was number one in luck and turnover in every defensive category. Why Why should I expect them to be any worse? And then they go from, what, 12 wins to eight. And I'm not saying that's going to happen. In, in, I think Illinois should make a bowl game this year. Like, I think it's a massive failure if they don't. But I'm just saying, as Carp just said, when you've seen the peak, that's fine, but you've also seen those valleys, and I, I'm not going to discount the possibility that Illinois could be uniquely bad enough a number of times to go four and eight or five and seven. No, and I, I think that's fair to say. I, but at the same time, no one's going to look at this bear season and say, "Yeah, I mean." And, and Trevor, to your credit, you you completely called it at the beginning of the year. But if I, I mean, you even were saying back then when people were predicting the uh, the bear schedule. Man, I see us going like nine and seven, and I don't really like that. But you know, th that kind of surprises me. Like, like you when you were calling that, you were saying, "Why am I having them only winning nine games?" Yeah, like, like it, it, it was a disappointment, but it was also a little bit. It's not like people were like, "Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at this, thinking this is the way it should be," and and that that's that's why I just don't look at the season like you know, Trevor, you said this would be a massive disappointment if, if Illinois doesn't make a bowl game because last year was kind of it was seen as okay now you finally made it to the starting point now you got to get going 
All right, when well, you combine this as Lovey's best roster, and you have to be four and zero, get me out of the start. It would yeah. just be such a massive failure if they didn't get to six wins. Well, and we need to hold oh, those yeah. expectations. We need to hold them to those expectations. And the thing is, though, I I know that my cynicism is just kind of really seeping through here. I mean, what we well, did, your frustration is projecting forward, right? That we it's don't projecting hold them to those expectations that uh, Lovey can't be fired, that the recruiting class doesn't yeah, get but, better, and that's totally fair. It's just a feeling. It's almost a suffocating feeling thinking that, okay, I don't think this thing's going to work. In the middle of the four-game win streak last year, I thought, you know what? This could work. But here's the deal. I thought during the four-game win streak and then the bye week after the Michigan State comeback win. And okay. i throw Iowa in there, too. And the I- yeah, I would agree with that, too. Yeah. That, okay, you know what? They're stabilizing things on the field, and naturally, naturally, this is going to equal a, you know, ninth, 10th best team in the recruiting uh, team in the Big Ten. I don't even need great recruiting classes. I just need something. You know, it's stabilize. I mean, stabilize and get to that plateau of five, six, maybe seven wins a year and go with that, those meager expectations and then to see them just, you know, and I would say flail around and try to get recruits. I don't even know. I don't want to question the effort because I'm not there in the office doing this. Right. But if the effort is there, it, it, what's more concerning? If they have one recruit because of a lack of effort, or if they only have one recruit despite their best efforts? <laughs> no, I, I I think my projection, uh, my projected anger is definitely towards the idea that, and I, I don't, I hate to say like it's towards the idea that they're not putting an effort because I don't know, but it's just it doesn't help given Lovey's personality when things aren't happening because the way he looks and the way he sounds makes it seem like he's putting in no effort, which I don't necessarily believe is true, but he's not helping his case any. You know yeah, what I mean? Like he was on a he was on a conference call a few weeks ago and I, I don't know why this bothered me, but every single coach in their conference call immediately said, you know, shout out to people at Carl Hospital working on the front lines. You know, he said nothing. I don't he's, I don't even think he's here. He probably went home to Florida. And again, like I'm getting real personal with this stuff. But I just don't get the sense that he is ingrained in this community. He never has been. He never was going to be. I knew that when they hired him, that he wasn't going to be this college football coachy coach. But this is when you weren't winning. I mean, my whole my whole caveat with that was I know he's not going to go to quarterback club. I don't care, whatever. I know he's not going to be rah, rah, let's go and get all the students pumped up. But if he wins, I don't care. And that was it. I knew that Lovey Smith, the personality of Lovey Smith, began to bother me towards the tail end of the Bears run. But I figured despite all that, he's a name, he's a brand, this will parlay itself into some good recruiting classes, and if he wins, I don't care. That's all, you know, I, it, that stuff wouldn't matter to me, but unfortunately, when you aren't winning, all those little things just sort of Well, the problem is you can't be the guy, you know, I think it was Robert Illini from Illini Board who, who had the comp originally that PJ Fleck is the guy, and I think I've said this before, who meets you right at the front of the furniture store and is like, Hey, I got a couch on sale over here. I got a chair on sale over here. <laughs> yeah. Lovey's sort of the older salesman at the back who says, you know, well, if they really want a couch, they'll come back to me and then I'll sell them the couch. Yeah. But you can't, you can't be that kind of guy when everybody else in the store is selling 15 couches and you've had no sales this month. You can't just sit back there and go, I'll wait for the sale to come to me. Nick Saban can do that. A few a few choice coaches can sit back and just say whatever. Coach K can just sit back and say I'm the head coach of Duke, yep. and but Lovey can't, you know. And and I think that there was a bit of arrogant. Listen, this is projecting again, but I do remember distinctly during the Bears run, 
there were always these hints of arrogance, especially in the way that Lovey dealed with, like, let's say, a Lawrence Holmes or other guys in the media. The arrogance was there. But when they were winning, again, that's fine. Arrogance when you're winning, just like Jordan, to bring it back to the last dance to close out, you know, arrogance is fine if you're backing it up with what you're doing on the field or on the court. Arrogance when you are not backing it up just becomes so tiresome so quickly. And I think that, again, while that is projecting arrogance onto Lovey, when I cannot say 100% for certain that he is, I've never met him or talked to him personally one-on-one. But that is the vibe that you get. And this sort of apathy, lethargic nature of this football program right now, it's troubling. Um, Josh Whitman is lucky to have the shield, let's say, of this pandemic where it's not at the top of people's mind. If this were business as normal and we entered spring practice with one stupid recruit, well, I'm not saying that recruit's stupid, but you know what I mean, the number. Hey, come on. Jamar is probably a nice guy. (laughs) But if... If we entered normal circumstances, spring football with this is our situation, well, what the hell? It's, yeah. It's, uh, well, and, 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 but back to your best moment, you know, type of thing. I, I would, I would liken it to, I don't know, what's, this is kind of a weird question. What's a bad movie with a great scene? Can you think of one? I can't think of one. I, I'll give you head. one. Yeah, I, I oh, got one. Harry, too. go ahead. X Men Apocalypse, when Quicksilver runs through the exploding house and ah. saves everyone. With Sweet Dreams by Eurythmics playing in the background. That's hmm. a good scene. Uh, I yeah. would say the opening sequences of The Happening, the M. Night Shyamalan movie. Oh, God. Which the that opening... movie's really cool. Yeah. What? You think that, you... That like... movie... Well, no, no. Is that, that's with Nicolas Cage, right? No, no. It was Mark no, Wahlberg. No, 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 no. Oh, no, 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 no. Uh, that, that's The Knowing. Oh, okay. I think. Well, so... that movie... No, no. If I remember correctly, that movie's really cool until the end when it's just... It was aliens. Well, okay. you're, t- you're talking about the one with Zoe Deschanel, too, yes. right? where they're like running from the wind. The, basically, people just the opening scene of the happening, people are just randomly killing themselves. And yeah, it's very this unsettling. Is, this, is, this is Marky Mark, right? Correct. And yeah, then right. yeah. and then the movie begins. So it, it all yeah. falls off. But the, the opening well, sequence it, was like, oh, this is a it was a great idea. And then after the first 10 minutes, it's like, oh, this is terrible. You know where I'm going, though, right? Like yes. the Michigan State comeback is that scene. And then any basketball memory is like a scene from Dark Knight. There's a difference in the way you view it in a macro sense. Agreed. Well, on that note, boys, we got a whole off season to talk about this. And I'm hoping that when we meet next Monday, of course, we'll have uh, episodes five and six to talk about The Last Dance. And then maybe, I mean, it'd be great if Illinois basketball landed one of these transfers. I know that, what is it, Chandri or Chandi? Chandi it's Brown. Chan, it's basically D Brown with the phrase Chon in front of it. Chon D Brown from Wake Forest, which Danny Manning no longer there as the head coach, so he's Sleep. transferring up. Sleep. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we go, got to thank, of course, uh, DP Doe online at dpdo.com. Online deliveries uh, anywhere at Champaign Urbana, so you can stay at home and eat a delicious calzone. Also, Fourth and Kirby online at fourthandkirby.com, 200 level, coupon code 200 level, and State Farm Agent Brian Hansen online at brianismyguy.com. What's that again, Trevor? Brianismyguy.com. All right, so boys, we'll see you next Monday. We'll do another one of these. That was a very extended conversation about Illinois football, which, you know, actually, I had no other thought to that. I, you ever, <laughs> hold on. You know should should I delete that or just let that pause be there? Should I let the uh, organic just leave it? Leave it. If someone made it this far into the podcast, what the hell? I'll give them that little treat of me having a brain fart an hour and 40 I'm going to go watch it. some more uh, top women's gymnastics moments, so I'll see you later, guys. Cool. Let me know how yeah, Big dude. Ten Infinity Umlaut is doing. 
with its square coverage. root Big Ten network. I like that. The square root Big Ten network squared root. Yes, squared root. <laughs> All right, uh, Harry Black, Trevor Belise. We'll see you guys next week. All right, take care, guys, and we will see the rest of you later this week when we get old Lante on the program. That will be recorded on Thursday, so we'll get that out Thursday evening or Friday morning. All right, that was a longer one there, but appreciate it if you hung in there until the end. We will see you later this week. It is the 200 level.